I see so many people say, you have to do everything you possibly can. And that's not necessarily the best thing to do, and not even a kind thing to do. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. And I was a caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, which inspired me to do this work that I do now in supporting other caregivers. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer some practical insights, and share some emotional support and maybe even share a laugh or two along the way, and we all know that laughing is, in fact, the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Nope, can never forget the wine. So, caring for Roger, we definitely dealt with the healthcare system a great deal. Several different doctors, um, several different morbidities, as they're called, different diseases. So we had a great deal to uh, deal with, and I wish at that time I had known Margaret Fitzpatrick and had benefit of her wonderful book. Yes, her book is called Getting the Best Care, and we certainly could have used that dealing with the myriad of doctors that we had to deal with because my dad had a whole menu of health issues. So Margaret cared for both of her parents as they aged into their 90s. And through that experience, learned the importance of establishing individual healthcare goals that reflect her values. She's a busy speaker on these issues and consults with private clients to help them to negotiate the healthcare system. Please welcome Margaret Fitzpatrick. Hi, Margaret. Hi. Thanks for having me, Mike and Bobby. I can't tell you how helpful um, it was to go through your book and see the resources that you've put out there for so many people. Um, there are a number of the issues in there, you know, really spoke to me. One of the things that I did in preparing to care for Mike's dad, once I realized it was a lot bigger than I ever thought it was going to be, was to go and get some education as a medical assistant, not because I ever wanted to work in that profession, but simply because I wanted to be able to speak to doctors and nurses and even psychiatrists in a way that they would I would be able to understand what they were saying to me, and they would understand that I kind of knew what I was talking about, and, and that seemed to help. I had a number of them ask if I was a nurse, and I certainly don't claim to have had that expertise, but it definitely helped to have some kind of preparation because a person can really get lost in trying to deal with these issues. Oh, yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing, and thank you for putting that information out there. Yeah, it's something that I see families struggling with every day in the hospital. Uh, right now in the hospital, I am a nurse anesthetist, so I'm giving anesthesia in the operating room every day. And all too often, it's for patients over the age of 70, 75, 80 with multiple medical problems, and they're just kind of on a downward spiral, and family doesn't know what to do. So they keep bringing them back to the hospital and they keep getting worse. <laughs> so it's really uh, something that people struggle with, how to have, uh, as you said, the rational relationship with healthcare as they age, because it's different as you age than it is when you're in your 20s, 30s, and 40s. Right. It can be a little frightening for, for us as they age. Um, I turned 70 this year, 
And although most people say, oh my, you look great or you're very healthy, I understand enough to make me almost fearful if I go in, have to go into the hospital and there's going to be anesthesia, I'm a little worried about how that might affect my cognitive ability coming out of there. Um, and I, I've tried to let my family know that this could be a concern. Uh, but I, I know there may be a circumstance where it has to happen, but it, it still scares me a little bit. And um, I pretty much made it clear to my, my personal doctor that she and I work together, but basically she works for me. Um, <laughs> and um, we're a team in this, and she's, she's very understanding with that. So th that's helpful to me. But an issue that you mentioned in your book is the multiple medications that older people take. And, and, and that's, that's kind of frightening to me, too. Um, so maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Sure, absolutely. And I think you're right to be cautious. I wrote the book so that people hopefully wouldn't have to be fearful because if, you know, operating from a standpoint, anytime that you're dealing with things from a standpoint of fear, you're more likely to make bad decisions and um, do things that you regret later. But if you can be cautious and know what the risks are, and most importantly, know what your viewpoint is, what are your goals, what, is, what are your priorities, then you, you feel that you're coming into it in a more empowered way rather than feeling like you're just at the mercy of whatever doctor or nurse is handing you or suggesting for you. And one of those important issues is medication. I, I see patients who are on 10, 12, 14 different medications. And one problem is that they keep getting new medications added every time they come into the hospital and no one has reassessed whether or not they should still be taking them. And so it's important, even though our visits with our physicians are all too brief because they're so stressed for time, um, it's important to say, hey, let's take a look at these, this list of meds that I'm taking or that my dad or my grandma or whomever uh, that, we're, that we're dealing with on a daily basis and tell me if there's anything we don't absolutely need. One thing that one category of medications that's common for people to continue taking as they age are what's called the statins, the medications for high cholesterol, right? which can be argued are great medications for people to avoid heart disease and to get their cholesterol lower. But as people age past 80 and 85, there's good evidence that they maybe don't need to be taking those anymore. And so that's something that needs to be brought up because otherwise you're just going to keep taking all these meds forever. And they are likely to cause, as you age, especially for people of very advanced age, more problems than they help you with. It's funny you should mention the statins because Bobby and her doc our doctor uh, recently had a debate about that. Well, two of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, had a, I had a checkup about six months ago and the doctor mentioned that my cholesterol was a bit high. Uh, well, she didn't mention it during the exam. I had the blood test, and a couple of days later, the, I got a phone call from the nurse saying, the doctor's prescribed a new medication for you. And I said, what is it? Oh. And, and I was told it was a statin. And I said, well, I'm going to look into this before I decide whether or not I'm going to take it. My goal is to take as few medications as necessary. Absolutely. Yeah. And when I saw some of the side effects, one of which included memory loss, and I had just had that mi that mini cognitive test where you 
you know, remember the three words and you draw the clock. And uh, I, I aced it beautifully. I even remembered more words than the doctor did. <laughs> and um, and then I saw that in Caucasian and some Asian women, it's been known to cause type 2 diabetes. And I said, oh, no, I, I'm not taking this. Based on cholesterol being a little bit high, I'm, I'm not taking it. So I went online and I explained myself and the prescription was canceled. And a couple of days ago, I had to go in for a checkup to get my blood pressure medication renewed. And we had this discussion again, um, you know, about chances are in the next 10 to 15 years with cholesterol rising, I could be a candidate for a heart attack. And I said to her, doctor, I'm 70. I'm going to die from something. I do not want to die from dementia caused by my medication. I do not want to die from type 2 diabetes that was caused by my medication. And she said, okay, we will revisit this in another six months. <laughs> but I wish all of my patients were as self-aware as you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although that's very nice for her to have that viewpoint. So often they're so stressed for time that it just becomes an annoyance when patients come back with questions or or a reason why they don't want to follow the recommendation. But I think I think you were so smart to do that um, that research and not just rely on one or two you know posts on the internet, but to really look specifically um, because for marginally high cholesterol, for cholesterol that's not you know an alarm, it's interesting that we prescribe something rather than sit down and say, "Let's look at your diet." And how much exercise are you getting? Because uh, doctors are convinced that Americans won't change behavior as much as they are willing to put a pill in their mouth. Well, the doctor has even said to me, I'm healthier than 90% of people in my age group. So to just automatically take a medication because it's something prescribed for somebody who's 65 or older or has, like you said, marginal issues. And so... <laughs> She said, Bobby, you've made yourself loud and clear. <laughs> <laughs> huh. I know that, Bobby. Oh, very good. Well, that's great. <laughs> that's, that's what's needed. Everyone should make themselves loud and clear. This is your life. Exactly. You know, and too often people feel they're being rude or they don't want to make their doctors um, upset or they don't want to make them disappointed. That in, in surveys is a big problem that Families and patients will go along even though they're thinking they would prefer not to have a test or a treatment specifically in advanced cancer patients, mm -hmm. but they do it because they don't want to disappoint their physicians. Well, Michael always had the, uh, he had the idea of the, you know, these hands are blessed by God and who am I to question the doctor? <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. That's a, he's a mechanic. He's a <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> And who's going to be living with the results of those decisions? It's going to be you and your family. So, yeah, it's something we have to take very seriously, which requires us to take responsibility. And that's a whole other aspect of this. Yes. Um, one of the things in your book that I found uh, particularly interesting was uh, your discussion on the healthcare conveyor belt. Yes. Would you explain to our listeners? Oh, my goodness. Yes, this is something that my my colleagues in the hospital are constantly hearing from me as we're preparing a patient in, in their 80s uh, to have yet the third surgery that they've had in two years. And, 
each time we see the patient, the patient is a little bit worse off. And that's often with people, especially people of very advanced age, they continue going to the doctor and they go to specialists and they're referred for tests. And the tests very frequently, if you're 80 or 85 or 90 years old, tests are not going to come back normal. And then we put you on this conveyor belt of tests to see whether or not that first test was accurate. And then maybe there's a biopsy ordered. And before you know it, you're having complications from the testing and the procedures, and you're not really improving the person's health. And no one's stopping to question, why are we doing this? And it's very similar with the medication issue. You have to stop and say, is this appropriate at my time in life with my health problems? I understand this might be beneficial to some people. But specifically to me, is this going to benefit me? Because we put you on the conveyor belt and we'll run you through a million tests and procedures. There's no end to the things we can do to you. (laughs) But whether or not they're going to benefit you specifically, that's what you need to find out before you agree to having any test or procedure or taking any medication. Is it specifically going to benefit me at my age and with my health history? And we... We spent so many years, so many generations trying to do our best to keep people alive because their medications weren't available and the operations weren't understood and uh, that we're still stuck in that mode. And Well, I am all for keeping people living as long as humanly possible if that's what the person's priority is. Right. The problem is we're, we're working against ourselves. Because what research shows and what I see every day in the hospital, just anecdotally, is as people age, the more we're doing to them, the worse off they are. The more that's spent on your health care as you age past 70 and 80 years old, the lower your quality of life is and the more complications See, that's the that's the point I was trying to make, and you said it so much better. <laughs> it's not that I want, didn't want people to stay alive. It's that this system kind of works against us anymore. Yes, we're working against the goal. And too often when I'm trying to give people the realistic viewpoint, for instance, when people, um, I just had this yesterday, actually responding to an emergency code in the hospital. And most cases, the people are over the age of 70 and they have multiple medical problems. They have kidney failure, diabetes, congestive heart failure, cancer. And we're doing the emergency code. That is the chest compressions. I'm putting in a breathing tube. You know, we're shocking the heart and starting people on powerful medications to keep their blood pressure up in the hope of gaining one more day of life. And I I try and let their families know that just statistically that patient who's over the age of 70 who has multiple medical problems and who has a cardiac arrest in the hospital has about less than a 2% chance of leaving that hospital alive. Do you think that some of that comes from all of these wonderful medical shows on TV where we see people being... Oh, absolutely. I talk about that all the time. It makes for compelling TV drama, but in reality, it just makes for suffering and agony for the family. I don't think people realize that they can actually break your ribs doing CPR. Well, and you know, people say that, but honestly, if you say to me, um, you're going to live 
10 more years, but we're going to have to break your ribs. I'd be like, okay, go ahead and break my ribs. Right. You know, <laughs> if, if my life is going to be good for those 10 years. But if you're talking about just kind of flogging this patient with everything we have, and we're going to do it two, three, four times in the next two or three days, because that's what happens. They continue to code. Mm. Um, and then we're going to all realize, okay, now we can't get the heart rate back. You know, we keep doing it until we just can't get the heart rate back. And that's when everyone knows, okay, now this patient has died. Well, then does the breaking of the ribs and all of this make sense? If we're at the end, we're going to go through two, three days of this and the person's going to die, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a horrible way to go. It's just, it's very, it's very alarming. It's very upsetting. And what And people in the hospital, you know, doctors and nurses get frustrated with families because they roll their eyes and say, oh, the family wants, you know, us to do everything. They want everything done. And I say, well, of course they do, because we needed to have this conversation with this family and this patient five years ago, two years ago, (laughs) and every time they come into the hospital to say, if there's an emergency, if something happens and your heart and your breathing is not sustaining your life. What do you want us to do? Because here's the odds that we're going to be successful with that. And as time goes on, the odds will get less and less, and they'll be used to this conversation so that when they're 90 years old and have congestive heart failure, dementia, and everything else, the family knows, no, when they come into the hospital because of pneumonia, if there's an emergency, please do not code my grandma, because we know from all this patient education, we understand that it's not going to help her. It's just going to cause a lot of upset. But we we don't do that advanced preparation for families, you know, as people age. And that's what I'm trying to do with the book, Getting the Best Care, is kind of give that realistic viewpoint that, yes, we can do great things. But as you age and develop more and more medical problems, the more we do for you and to you, you're less, you're not going to be better off. So I've always said that this is one of those tough decisions that, that, and discussions that need to be uh, had. When do you suggest having this discussion about DNRs and what, um, what type of procedures you allow as a medical power of attorney or those type of things? Yeah. People do think, I understand people think of it as kind of an intimidating process. And I think of the the DNR and the medical power of attorneys, those are important things to talk about and nail down. But honestly, they're the least important component. The most important thing is the conversations that you have between family members. And so that people know, like I knew when my, as my mother aged, uh, and she lived to be 99, we were very blessed because she she always knew who we were. She didn't have that um, severe dementia. But I knew once she was in her 80s, she made it very clear she did not want to go to the hospital. She wanted to limit her interactions with the healthcare system. Um, so I knew as different things came up, it wasn't a big crisis point for me because we had already discussed what her attitude was. You know, so it wasn't a matter of DNR. It was a matter of, well, we're not going to go to the hospital. So that's not even an issue. Right, right, You know, so people need to have those discussions and 
healthcare providers need to be more comfortable because people think of it as, do you want this person to live or die? You know, do you want us to shock the heart? Do you want us to put in a breathing tube? And you're making the decision, is she going to live or is she going to die? That's what they're hearing. Well, everyone says, I want her to live. Of course. What we need to say is, we're going to do everything that we can, and we're not going to get the outcome that you're hoping for. I love the way you, way you put that. So you want to have these last moments together quietly in peace, or do you want it to be in the ICU with people running around? And either way, this person's not coming home with you. Circling back for a moment, we had talked about um, the medications. And I know one of the discussions we had with the doctors with my dad, and, and he had a whole menu of issues going from schizophrenia to heart disease to Parkinson's to dementia, et cetera, et cetera, is that the doctors, the different doctors that he had, couldn't see information from the other doctors. Well, it was available. They didn't, they didn't look at it. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're prescribing drugs. And when you start looking at it, this drug interacts with this other drug and not in a very good way. Mm-hmm. And, and so we really had a hard time getting them all on the same sheet of music to consult with each other about the drugs and the interactions of the drugs. Yeah. Well, and quite honestly, they're not going to consult with each other. And I keep going back to this lack of time. Um, And so it's our responsibility for ourselves or for the people we're caring for to have that list of medications and to show it to each person who is prescribing. Right. And that's what Bobby did. The problem is also, though, really the expert on that are your pharmacists. So if there's a new prescription being given... Ask your pharmacist, you know how they always say, do you have any questions <laughs> as you're picking up your meds? And you say, no, because <laughs> I've got 10 more things to do today and I don't want to stand here. But mm-hmm. show your pharmacist that they, you should be getting all your meds pres- um, filled at the same pharmacy, you know, and say, it, right. do you see any problems? If this were your dad, would you be concerned about anything in this list of medications? Making it personal to that healthcare provider is very effective. Because then you might get, well, okay, how old is he? Oh, okay. Well, you know, maybe he doesn't need to take a statin if he has dementia and Parkinson's and all these other things. And honestly, I have seen patients and their family members who have asked me about their list of meds and they said, we're going crazy. We can't be taking meds all day long. You can go in and say, okay, here's my list of meds, doctor. Pick four because I'm not taking more than four. (laughs) (laughs) if that's your priority. You know what I mean? If your priority is to limit the amount of medications that you're taking, um, then we need to prioritize and tell me what do I absolutely, in your opinion, have to take, and then I'll decide whether or not I'm going to do that. Um, And what is something like Bobby was talking about with the statin? This is not something that she's at the level where she needs to take this or she's going to die in a month, you know? So let's, let's, prioritize this because we want to we want to take as few medications as possible and one thing about meds as people age over 65 and 70 the likelihood that they're going to have an adverse drug reaction increases exponentially with each new medication that's added and you can even have an adverse drug reaction to a med that you've been taking for three four five years Mm -hmm. so pharmacists who specialize in the care of older patients 
say that any new symptom that comes up, you're getting dizzy, you know, whatever it is, you have a lot, lack of appetite, um, you're having muscle pain, any new, new um, symptom that comes up for someone over the age of 70 should be first viewed as an adverse drug reaction and rule that out before you start going through a maze of tests and procedures and prescribing new medications to treat that symptom. Very interesting. Very, um, very interesting. Because, because Mike's dad had so many issues, I mean, he had a primary care doctor, a psychiatrist, a neurologist, a cardiologist, um, a dementia specialist. He had an ENT because he had dysphagia. And, you know, getting them all talking at the same time was impossible. So when he would be admitted to the hospital and he got his treatment at a VA hospital because he was a 100% service-related disability rating with the VA. So his pharmacy was the same place. He always went to the hospital in the same place. But because of all of this going on, say, for instance, if he was on the psych ward, they didn't necessarily pay attention to the physical. And if he was on the medical ward, they didn't necessarily pay attention to the psych. Mm -hmm. I would go in and basically spend the day. I say when he was admitted, so was I, because I knew that there were things too, too much going on for the staff who's overworked already to pay attention to this kind of thing. And I was sharing that with a doctor that we met at the, um, International Dementia Conference in Toronto, and he looked at me and he goes, oh, you're one of those. (laughs) Wow. Um, He said, we don't like to deal with people like you. (laughs) And I said, you know, that kind of surprises me. I said, because we had a nurse that was assigned to us. We had a telehealth system. Jason was my buddy, my backup person if I needed help. And if he saw something going on, he would let me know. And he said, you know, Bobby, if, if, if I need somebody to care for me, I would like you to do it. And, and this doctor said, well, so would I as a patient. But he said, you um, in there with your father-in-law, I don't want to deal with you. Gosh. And, you know, I was kind of taken aback by that. Yeah, that's like a knife in my heart. But it, I know that that is true. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's too bad. Can I ask how old um, was your father-in-law as you were going through all these problems? It was uh, between 76 and 70 or 83. Wow. Yeah. That's years old. Years that's old. That's a long time. Um, sometimes I, I ask people to kind of, because you can be driven crazy going to all these different specialists. And at some point you have to pull back and say, is it beneficial for us to continue seeing the cardiologist, you know, or is his, cardiac condition something the primary care doctor can address or is the neurologist something you know and just kind of go through because some people don't have someone that is as um, well versed and able to step up as you were Bobby um, so absolutely and eventually what they did was eventually they they started pulling back yeah. one first one then another then another and eventually to the point they said okay don't bring him in anymore. If it's really an emergency, if you really need us, we will come to you. But yeah, started, you know, reducing the medications, um, brought in in-home hospice. Um, so, yeah. Well, and I would th- that even eventually... say for someone who, especially someone who has advanced dementia, which can go on for three, four, five, six years, um, 
so you're not necessarily going to get the benefit of hospice at that point, is to avoid going into the hospital if at all possible, because each time you go in, you're taking a hit to their cognitive strength, and they're likely to come out with more confusion and delirium. And so you're kind of taking away their their mental strength each time you subject them to a hospitalization. And that can be, you know, it's a difficult decision to make. I think this this discussion we're having today is so important because I see so many people say, you have to do everything you possibly can. And as, as you mentioned earlier, that that's not necessarily the best thing to do. Well, let me just not say even a kind thing to do. That do everything that you possibly can. That's like people in the hospital when I arrive at a at an emergency code, and I'll say, does the fa- is the family aware that this ninety year old who has advanced dementia and lung cancer that we're likely not going to be able to get the <laughs> result that they're looking for? And the nurses will constantly say, the family wants everything done. And my point is, the next question needs to be, everything done in order to what? We have to have a goal that we're working towards when we're taking an activity. So everything done, yes, I want everything done in order for my mother to live the best possible life she can. I want her to be healthy and participating in life, and I want her to come home with us. Well, now, if that's your goal, and she's 90 and has dementia and cancer, I'm going to tell you, I'm afraid we're not going to reach that goal. And so can we do everything we can to keep her comfortable and to prevent her from being injured further? So we have to define everything can in order, everything we can do in order to what? What's the goal? Right. Uh, One of the situations that we ran in with Mike's dad, because he had developed dysphagia and all of his food had to be pureed and liquids thickened, that kind of thing. At one point, we were asked about a feeding tube, and we refused that. For You know, I talked with his nurse, and he said, you know, it's not going to extend his life any. Yeah, I, I wish every doctor had that um, that knowledge and that ability to say to families, yes, we could put in a feeding tube. But honestly, according to the American Academy of Geriatricians, people who specialize in the care of older patients, they say that they are not recommending feeding tubes for people with advanced dementia because it actually makes them more sick. It puts them at risk of having bed sores, of having infections of aspirating into their lungs, which is what we're trying to prevent, which is why people put in the feeding tube because they say, oh, he (laughs) can't swallow effectively and he's going to be, you know, choking on things. It happens with feeding tubes also. It just happens in a more insidious way and they come back in three months with pneumonia. And so we end up putting people, we're doing things with the hopes of helping people and what we're actually doing is setting them up for that ride on the conveyor belt. You come in, you've had a stroke, you're having difficulty swallowing, you have dementia, we put in a feeding tube, now you come back with pneumonia three months later, then you come back three months later with a bed sore, and it just goes on and on. Right. So um, can you give probably what you think is the most important tip for somebody who's bringing some, caring for someone with dementia about what they need to do 
in dealing with hospitalization and, and treatments going forward? What would be the sure. one thing that you want everybody to know? Well, I would want everyone to know that for aging people who have dementia that is past the you know mild to moderate phase, we're getting into a phase where that person can no longer make decisions um, that less is more in terms of health care. That taking someone, just know that you're going into the hospital with that person who has advanced dementia, that person will develop delirium and will be at a greater risk for falling, will be at a greater risk for becoming combative, even if they're not combative at home. And when you take that person home, you're likely to have um, never recover how they were before you went into the hospital. So there better be a big payoff to going into the hospital if, if you're going to risk, you know, your ability to think and make decisions. And they're at such a great risk for having, uh, for developing bed sores and other injuries in the hospital simply because they're difficult to care for and take a lot of time from the staff. And we just don't have that kind of care, physical care in the hospital anymore. But anytime you're taking someone really with or without dementia, as you age past 70, going into an unfamiliar environment in a weakened state because you're ill you are at great risk for delirium. And when you have dementia, you're at an even greater risk. And that delirium is a sudden onset of confusion. May not be obvious. It might be, usually it's a quiet delirium where people withdraw. And um, they may not recover once they go home. They may not have pneumonia anymore, but they may not be that same person that went into the hospital. So keep in mind that less is more very frequently as people age and as they have dementia. Well, Margaret, we certainly thank you for taking the time out of your day to spend some time with us and our listeners. We so, so appreciate it. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I especially thank you. My husband heard what you had to say, and I will make sure that my children listen to this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Yeah, it's all about conversations and letting people know what your priorities are and how how you want to live every day of your life. It's not about dying. It's about how you want to live. Quality of life. Absolutely. That, that's a perfect way to end this segment. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's so important that patients and families understand the dangers of unnecessary treatments. Well, we've certainly experienced that with my dad, uh, especially with all the myriad of medications that he took. And um, we've touched on a lot of topics today, but in reviewing, let's think about what we talked about. Number one was, and and she said it at the very end, establish the individual healthcare goals and how important that is and communicating what those goals are. And everybody should be on the same sheet of music at the same symphony at the same time. Less is more was, was critical, yes. I think. Yes, yes, yes. And also beware of the conveyor belt. She said, you know, we can put you through test after test after test and be sure, be sure, be sure. Um, and maybe, 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 or maybe not. So really question the tests and where they're going with that. And I think another important, really important thing was talk to the pharmacist and questions about the medications and the interactions, not necessarily the doctor, but talk to your pharmacist. I, I think that's really, really important. I never thought of it in that context. So that was kind of an aha moment for me. 
You can find out more information about Margaret on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That, and I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please, subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know how we can help, or if you have a question you'd like for us to address, or if you just want to say hi, please do. To find out more about us or where Bobby will be speaking next, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.